Good evening. Good to see you this evening. So we had a question this morning to start things off. I'm going to have a question this evening to start things off. Here's the question. Would Jesus want to be a member of the Oldham Lane Church of Christ? And I realize it's kind of a silly question considering that Jesus is the head of the church and that he purchased it, member, my member with his own blood. But set that aside for just a moment. If Jesus was to visit at one of our assemblies on Sunday morning, what do you think he would see? What would he be impressed with? Surely he would like our bulletin. You know, I think he would think that, you know, the pews are nice, the carpet's nice and all that. Singing's good, right? Preaching, eh. But other than that, I think he would be okay with what we're doing here from a formality standpoint. But what would he see in the members here? What would he see in the people? He is the heart knower. So Jesus, knowing everything that resides in every nook and cranny of our hearts, what what would he think about the people who assemble here? Would he be impressed? Because I think what he would see are people who love being here. And who want to be here more than anything else because this is their family. I hope that's what he would see. I think that's what he would see. But that's what our goal should be. And the tie that binds everything together, the glue that sticks us all together is love, right? And you know this, but love is an action. It's a verb. You know, you can say I love you and you can say how much you love someone or something all you want, but eventually those words become empty if you don't prove them in action because love was meant to be said and meant to be displayed. It's a show and tell type of thing. Love is expressed not just with words, but also with things like commitment and sacrifice and and, and selflessness. If love doesn't include those things, well, then you don't truly love someone. You can say you love someone all you want, but if you don't show it in action, it falls empty, right? Your energy, your time, your faithfulness, all of these prove your love, kindness, generosity, gentleness. Now, these are virtues that we probably have no problem applying to our spouse or to our children or our grandchildren, but as the family of God, they have to be evident among us and even outside these walls to the people that maybe we don't get along with, the people that might even be our enemies, people that maybe don't think too kindly of us. How strong is our commitment level? What's as strong as our our love level? Here's the problem so often when it comes to church and, and what we struggle with. We struggle because we see the church too much as an organization and not an organism, right? I've said that before, but all too often church is something that is separate and apart from us. We say that when it comes to separating communion from contribution. It's separate and apart. Many people look at the church that way. It's separate and apart from what they are and what they do. In fact, it is something that they do. You come to church. You go to church. No, church is who you are. We are the church. We are the called out you do realize that nothing about this building is sacred. Nothing. It's brick and mortar. The pews are not sacred. I know of some who who would throw a fit over a table to serve communion on that didn't say, do this in remembrance of me. They would say that's sacred. No, it's a piece of furniture. There's nothing, nothing sacred about it. The only thing sacred within this building is you. It's us. It's Christians. That's the only thing that is sacred. 
Our Father is holy, and all too often we get caught up in in the building and the stuff, but none of that is church. We are church, and to love the church is not to love the architecture or the amenities or the preacher or the youth minister. To love the church is to love one another, and the tie that binds us all together is that love. Another struggle that we have when it comes to church is that we see it as an activity. Again, you go to church because it's something that happens twice a week at a building, at an agreed-upon time. Church is an activity. It's a, it's a to-do list item. And so we assemble, we go home, we're done for another week. But it's so much more than that. I don't need to tell you that. The church gathers, the church also scatters, and we're always the church, whether we're here or whether we're outside these walls. Another problem we have is we tend to compartmentalize church. And we do this because we compartmentalize everything in life. You know, I have my job, I have my home, I have church, I have sports, whatever it is, we compartmentalize everything. And we tend to compartmentalize church. But rather than compartmentalizing it, we should think of it as the way. You know, that was the reference to the church in the book of Acts. The church was a movement. And all too often we're a monument, aren't we? We talk about restoring first century Christianity, and often what we talk about is what we do in worship, the acts of worship. But if you're going to restore first century Christianity, you'd better be a movement again. And all too often, the church isn't a movement. It's a monument to a once great movement. Luke refers to Christianity as the way in the book of Acts. This term is referring to the way of salvation. Paul, who was also known as Saul, was a persecutor of Christians. Why? Well, because they were the way. Not because they were holed up in a building and never caused any problems, but because they were a movement. And the movement was spreading. They were living righteously. They were spreading the gospel. They were calling attention to themselves because of what they were doing as Christians. They weren't just going to church. They they weren't just worshiping at church. They were the church. And that church was a movement. They were the way. And God in his eternal wisdom established the church to be the agency by which the story of salvation would be told. And finally, I think some struggle with church because they see it as a consumer type uh, of, of place. It's a consumer-driven mentality. You know, it's, it's about what I want. When you go shopping for a new church, what's on your shopping list? What's on your grocery list, right? They have a playground for the kids. They have a gym. You know, do they, do they have this or that? You know, it's a lot of amenities that maybe shouldn't be at the forefront. Maybe some of those are important, right? But maybe they shouldn't be the most important. The opposite of the consumer-driven mentality is the what-can-I-offer mentality. What can I do? How can I help this church grow? How can this church help me grow? How can I help this church grow? Now, I realize that there's sometimes you, you just have to dismount a dead horse, right? There's some churches that, you know, they're moving away from truth or perhaps, you know, you're, you're not being fed. But in a vacuum, what can we do to help the church? You know, it's kind of the old JFK quote. That's not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Maybe it's the same as it applies to the church. So too often, all too often, we see the church as something that caters to me. It's like a full-service grocery store. I come in, I get my groceries, somebody else bags them, puts them in the cart, takes them to the car, and loads them in the car for me so I can drive off. And it, the church is not that, right? The church, instead of being a full-service grocery store, should be seen as a place where I can get in, where I can fit in, where I can serve, where I can do my utmost for his highest. Each and every church member should approach church 
from this perspective. What can I do to contribute to the health and vitality of this congregation? How can I make this body better? What do I bring to the table? What am I doing to ensure that the Lord's church that meets here at Oldham Lane is fulfilling its purpose? Those are the questions we need to ask of ourselves. Now, that's going to mean sacrificing for her. That means that we're going to have to be selfless in our mentality, setting my needs aside and looking to her needs first. It means showing her unconditional love. It means keeping her pure. It means loving the bride of Christ. Have you ever seen an ugly bride? I have. I most definitely have. I've seen churches split over prejudice, over politics, over personalities, over power. That's an ugly bride. I've seen churches where, at a friend that used to preach at a church, that when he got up to preach his first Sunday, 40 people got up and left because he wasn't the guy they wanted to hire. That's an ugly bride. And unfortunately, stories like that are all too common in the brotherhood. You know what makes a, a bride ugly? People. people. People can be ugly at times. Their hearts, their attitudes can be ugly. Have you ever seen a beautiful bride? I most definitely have. I've seen, I've seen a church where when you walk through the door, you can't even get to a pew without someone shaking your hand or welcoming you or, or maybe even embracing you. I've seen a church where people who have been away for a while for whatever reason come back and they're still welcomed with open arms. I've seen a church where someone is hurting, someone is, is dealing with difficulty in their marriage and the eldership rallies around them and tries to restore that marriage and help them get back on their feet. I've, I've seen a church where, where the members are united in strong service for God you know where that church is? It's right here. This is a beautiful bride. This is a church that I can be proud of, and I sure hope that God is proud of, and I think he is. You know, I, I feel like many times I, I, I'm constantly challenging you without ever coming back and saying, you know, we're doing pretty good. Larry and I were talking about this the other day. As a coach, we would win on Friday night, and I would go home and still couldn't sleep. Because I knew we shouldn't have won. That team was better. I don't know how we won. We shouldn't have won that game. Or I'd go home, and even though we won, I'd say, well, we won that game. But if we play like that, we can't beat this other team. I was never satisfied. I was a joyless winner. And I don't want you to be joyless winners. I want you to be joyful, joy-filled. Because this is a great place. Great things are happening here. And we need to relish that. We need to be, we need to be joyful about that. But you know what we could always do more of? Always. We could always love more, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about love, and he describes it. He says it's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it's not arrogant, it's not, uh, it does not act unbecomingly, it's not selfish, not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, uh, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it never fails. Of faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. These are actions that are defined here, right? If you ever had any doubt that love was a verb, here it is. It most definitely is. But not only is it a verb, it's a catalyst. Not only is it a catalyst, it's a, it's a measuring stick. Paul is basically saying, do you love like this? Like when you audit your love life, does it look like this? 
Because this is a description of you. Just insert your name in Paul's words there. Love is patient, love is kind. Clinton is patient, Clinton is kind. You know, just insert your name in there. It's a measuring stick to see, do you love like this? Maybe you love your parents like this. Maybe you love your spouse like this. Maybe you love your children like this. But do you love the church like this? Jesus had this to say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's what we've been talking about, you know, all year, is this vertical and horizontal relationship. It starts with God, it starts with the vertical, and the vertical affects the horizontal. The vertical presupposes, or the horizontal presupposes the vertical. So if I love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's going to affect how I love my neighbor as myself. But I start with God. You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he didn't intend for you to start with your enemies. You start with God. You start with Jesus. You love God first. And that affects all your other relationships. It's the vertical affecting the horizontal. Love should be who we are, not just what we do. It's not just an action. It's an attitude. It's a character trait. What we do should be a product of who we are. That's why I say love is a catalyst. It motivates everything that we do, everything that we are. If we are love, we will love, and we'll be all of those things that Paul spoke about when defining real love. If there's one thing that every church could do that would make an astronomical difference in their overall livelihood, it would be to love like Christ. Can you imagine how different the Lord's church would be everywhere if we all sought to love like Christ? Can you imagine the difference the Lord's church would make if all Christians sought to show off, to show and tell love? Have you ever seen an ugly baby? I have. I sure have. Now, you can never admit that, right? You can never say that. All babies are beautiful. No, they're not. But that's what we say, right? In fact, I had this idea that, that there were some babies, in fact, most babies were not real pretty to look at. And then I had my own. And I thought they were the most beautiful creatures on earth. And nobody's going to tell you any different that your baby is not beautiful, right? I mean, if anybody told you, if anybody was, had the gall to tell you your baby was ugly, you'd never believe them, right? Because it's your baby, it's beautiful. And it's the same way with the church. Instead of always looking for warts, we need to cherish her and understand that, yeah, it can be messy, it can be ugly at times, but this is our thing. This is our church. This is the Lord's church, but it belongs to Him, but we are a part of this. And is the church ugly at times? Yes, absolutely. Is the church less than lovable at times? No doubt, without question. But that doesn't mean that we give up on her and refuse to have anything to do with her. Love should be deeper than that. Love should be more committed than that. doesn't mean that like I said, you remain in a congregation that's not feeding you or that is moving away from truth. But by and large, we need to seek to serve this beautiful creation of God. Don't be the pimple on the end of her nose. Don't be the scar that mars her beauty. Don't be the wart. Be the reason that people from the outside are attracted to her. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I absolutely love this passage when it comes to who we should be as God's people. Maybe you've never looked at this passage before, and maybe you've never looked at it in this way, but hopefully you can see some insight that we can apply to Oldham Lane. Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. 
Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple, namely 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings, of gold for the things of gold, and of silver of the things of silver, that is, for all the work done by the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? David had a desire to build a house for God, and God said no. David wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, your son's going to build it, but you're not. Now, you think about that. In the church today, there might be some Christians that would say, well, if you're not going to let me do what I want to do, I'm out of here. There may be some that, that pout and sulk because they didn't get their way, because the elders didn't go for whatever program they wanted to do. There may be some Christians that would say, you know what, I'll just go to the church down the road. They'll let me do that. David could have said... What's in it for me? He could have said, well, I'll just take my toys and go. But instead, David gave to build a house of worship that he would never enter. Think about that. He wanted to build the house for God. God said no, and he said, okay, well, then I'll help provide for it. I may not see it come to fruition, but I'm going to give to it. I'm going to give the materials. I'm going to give of the riches so that it can be built. In fact, according to modern mathematics and calculations, David gave over $20 million to build the house of God after he was told that he couldn't build it himself. $20 million to a house that he would not even enter. I think some churches today might well say, well, I'm not giving a dime to something that doesn't benefit me. But notice David's heart. David says, I want to invest in the work of God any way that I can. If it means that God will be glorified, then I want to play whatever role I can. That's the attitude that all of us should have. His attitude is summed up in the statement, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen. So it didn't matter what, what David thought, God chose him. He's still young and inexperienced and the work is great for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. The temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. It wasn't for David. This wasn't about David. The church is not about you. It is, but it isn't, right? There's great benefit for you, but this isn't about you. This is about God. God had chosen whom he wanted to build this house, and that was all right with David. Even though he wanted to build it, he understood it's not about me. And he goes on to say, for the temple is not for man, but for God. David speaks for all of us. The church doesn't belong to us. We have been entrusted with its care and its well-being, but it's not ours. It belongs to our Lord. And therefore, what our Lord wants is what he should receive. Selfless service. When we approach church as a consumer, we've made it all about us. And maybe that's partly our fault. You know, from the time a, a person is raised in the church, from the time they're young, we, we come up with programs and, and groups to cater to them. And then they get older and we say, well, it's not about you. And they say, well, it always was. 
So maybe that's our fault to some degree, and I'm not saying it's wrong to have youth groups and yak and solo servants and all that. I'm just saying that somewhere along the way, we need to make sure that we're, we're preaching and teaching that ultimately, this is not about you. This is about God. Church can be a great benefit to us, but it's not about us. It's all about God because He established it. It belongs to Him, so our attitude should be, whatever I can do, God, wherever I can get in and fit in, wherever I can serve, I just want to serve. Ted Stollard was hard to love, at least by one teacher he had. Ted was not real interested in school. He was uh, sloppy in his appearance. He was expressionless, unattractive. His teacher, Miss Thompson, enjoyed bearing down with her red marker and making those X's on his paper and assigning him an F because she just didn't have a lot of patience for Ted. If only she had read his record. First grade, Ted shows promise with his work and attitude, but has a poor home situation. Second grade, Ted could do better. Mother seriously ill, receives little help from home. Third grade, Ted is a good boy, but too serious. He is a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Ted is very slow but well-behaved. His father shows no interest whatsoever. Christmas arrived in Miss Thompson's class, and all the kids brought their gifts and laid them on her desk, so excited to see her open them and to praise whoever brought her those, uh, the gift that she opened. And so she opens all the gifts, the kids are oohing and on, but Ted had brought her a gift too. It was wrapped in a brown paper bag and had scotch tape all over it. She opened it up and a bracelet fell out that was missing about half the rhinestones. And there was also a cheap, cheap bottle of perfume. The kids started to snicker. And so she hushed them by spraying a little bit on her wrist and letting them smell it. She thanked Ted for the gifts. At the end of the school day, Ted came up to her desk and said, you smell like my mother. And Ted told her that he was thankful that she liked his presence. He left and she immediately hit her knees and prayed to God for forgiveness and prayed that he would transform her heart. And so the next day when the kids came into school, she had a new attitude, a new outlook, a new perspective. She was going to give these kids the benefit of the doubt, and she was going to give Ted some extra attention. She saw some promise in him that she hadn't seen before. And so she worked with Ted, and he caught up. In fact, he even passed a couple of kids in the class. And when the school year was over, Ted was gone, and she didn't hear much from him again until several years later. She got a letter. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted to be the first to let you know I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Ted. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I've liked it. Love, Ted. Another four years and another note. 
Dear Ms. Thompson, as of today, I am now Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would have sit if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Ms. Thompson attended that wedding. She sat where Ted's mother would have sat because her love and compassion earned her that seat and entitled her to that privilege. How much different would the church be if we all gave each other the benefit of the doubt? If we all realized that this time is fleeting and that we could all be gone tomorrow and How much different would this church be, and any church would be, if, if we just sought a renewed heart, if we prayed for a transformed heart, if we sought compassion and love before all else, if that were our default setting, how much different we could be? You think about the impact we could make if we just loved more and loved deeper. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church family. And God, we know you're doing great things here, and we thank you for that. We pray that we don't get complacent. We pray that we don't, that we don't uh, rest on our laurels, but we also pray, Lord, that we can, we can enjoy what you're doing here, that we can live in the moment and we can relish it. We pray that we can love you deeper and serve you better. And with that, may we, may we love others deeper and serve them better as well. God, help us to be more like Jesus. That's it. That's the prayer. Make us more like Jesus. We love you, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Luke's got a song to lead. If we can help you tonight, we certainly would love to do so. This is a family. Family takes care of each other. So if you have a need that we can help you with, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.